Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Well, we've just finished celebrating St. Patrick's Day here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and for one day at least, we all get to be Irish. The reality is, though, that there may actually be a surprising amount of Irish heritage here in the province compared to almost anywhere else in the world. And that has something to do with the people that helped found our province from the southern British Isles. Now, of course, that doesn't apply to all of us, but it does encompass a good proportion. And that offers a unique opportunity to study our genetics in a way that will help us better understand our health and diseases which may be specific to our genes. Since the dawn of civilization, humankind has recognized the influence of heredity and applied its principles to the improvement of crops or animals. A Babylonian tablet from more than 6,000 years ago showed pedigrees of horses and talked about heredity. Other old carvings showed cross-pollination of date palm trees and even Aristotle emphasized how blood had something to do with heredity. Most of the mechanisms of heredity, however, remained a mystery until the 19th century when genetics as a science began. It was started from the work of Gregor Mendel in the middle of the 19th century. Mendel suspected that traits were inherited as discrete units and although he knew nothing of the physical or chemical nature of genes at the time, his units became the basis for the development of the present understanding of heredity. Today we have two guests to teach us a bit more about genetics here at home. In the first part of the show, we'll talk with Dr. Kathy Hodgkinson from Memorial University and then be joined by Dr. Rick Leach, Chief Strategy Officer of Sequence Bio, a Newfoundland and Labrador company conducting genetic research. Dr. Kathy Hodgkinson is an Associate Professor and Program Coordinator of Clinical Epidemiology and Genetics in the Faculty of Medicine and focuses on genetics and inherited causes of sudden cardiac death, in particular a condition known as ARVC in her research. She has a PhD in clinical epidemiology and was named the winner of the Marilyn Harvey Award to recognize the importance of research ethics. So she's an expert on genetics here at home and will share with us why it's important for our medical research. Let's check it out. Hi, Dr. Hodgkinson. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Mike. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. I think this is a great topic to chat about today. We're going to talk about what's called epigenetics and how genes are translated through populations. But I think we need to add a bit of a background for people. First of all, what do you do at the university? What's your field of study? Initially, I was a genetic counselor, and then I did my PhD in clinical epidemiology. And my interest really is in diseases that affect humans that run through families, particularly. So I have been very involved in what we call Mendelian diseases. And these are just diseases that mean lots of people in a family tend to be affected by the same disease. They tend to be a little bit rarer than the than the common diseases that we all know about, like diabetes and high blood pressure, et cetera. But every disease has a genetic component. And the question that we have is how much of a genetic component. So it's all on a continuum, really, from the diseases that have a very, very big genetic component. They are totally defined by your genetics to those that have a very, very small genetic component. So hmm. I'm, I'm sort of at the end of the high genetic component for my research. That's excellent. And Newfoundland and Labrador have some very specific types of genetic disorders, which we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, can you explain what DNA and genes are for the people listening? Well, yes. A DNA is a biological molecule that contains the instructions that tell us all how we are. It contains the instructions for 
creating us, for making us work properly. And that's true whether we are a bacteria, a banana, a monkey, or a human. We all share the same DNA. So DNA, in effect, if you like to think of it as, as a set of instructions, we often get instructions, don't we, via words, and we get those words via our alphabet. And alphabets vary, but if we just take the English alphabet, we have 26 letters. Well, DNA is an alphabet and it has four letters. So the 26 letter alphabet we use can make words of any sort of length that you that, that, that is available. The DNA alphabet just has three letter words, but with those three letter words, those words come together to make a sentence, which is actually a gene, and it makes something, so just like a recipe. So we have a recipe that has a series of instructions. We follow them. We either end up with a cake or a disaster. <laughs> so genes are very, very similar. We have just a different size alphabet and different length words. Right. And the order of those ingredients and how they're put into the recipe, again, will dictate what the end product is going to be. Exactly. And we all have... Like anything else, there's lots of mistakes that we have in our written DNA. And those mistakes, as I say, it's a four-letter alphabet. You can have an A, which, which I'll give you the letters are A, T, C, and G. So you could have a C that changes to a G or a G that changes to a T, et cetera, and so on. And whether those changes have an effect is very variable. So we can have changes like that that do nothing at all. And we can have changes like that that have a massive effect. Hmm. So the way I always like to think about it is Newfoundland has a strong um, religious background, a strong Christian background. So if we think of the Bible, for example, and the Ten Commandments, if we were to think of uh, thou shalt not kill, uh, if we were to miss out the T off that, so we would say thou shalt no kill, yeah. the meaning is still the same, where you're not to kill. If we missed out the word not, the meaning is totally different. Mm. Wow. So gene changes are like that. Gene changes can either have a massive difference, changes it completely, or changes it a little bit, but you still get the meaning, you still understand what it's saying, and it still does the job it's supposed to do. And we get our genes from our parents, uh, correct. We do. And, and so, you know, that's why there's some differences. My father was like almost six feet tall. I am obviously not almost six feet tall. How do we how does it determine what traits we get from our parents? Well, we, we inherit. In fact, the one thing you and I'll say this to anybody who's listening. The one thing we, we need to remember in terms of genetics, it's the easiest thing to remember is that genes come in pairs. And so do your Levi's and your Wranglers. And of course, I am dating myself then because those were the top gene makes when I was younger. Levi's are so pretty cool. what they are now. <laughs> but genes uh, but, uh, come in pairs and you get one of each pair from each parent. And of course, for, for, for some conditions, changes in a single gene make a difference. But in others, it's lots of little changes in different genes that make a difference. So height is one of those sort of features that we, there's a continuous variable. It's like you can get very, very short people, very, very tall people, and most people sort of fit in the middle. Um, so there are lots of genes that go to have an effect on height. So usually children usually are somewhere between either parent, but they can be further towards one parent or the other. Mm. It all depends on what those instructions are in each gene that you're getting from each parent. That's interesting. And 
you know, I, the other thing that's really, really important, I think, is when it comes to our predisposition towards certain diseases. And you sort of hinted on that, but there are ways that diseases and the genes can transfer within a population. So, for example, if a parent has two children, one child may have a disease, but it doesn't necessarily mean the other child is predisposed to those same sort of genes that will lead to that condition as well, correct? That's absolutely true. So even in the very, very genetic conditions, so these are conditions where of a pair of genes, one of them has a mistake in it. And when you inherit that gene with a mistake, you get the disease. That's the most genetic you can get. And even in those cases, you have a 50-50 risk as a child of that parent of inheriting that gene. So on average, half of the children of that parent will have the disease. And that is probably the most genetic you can get. Most things are not necessarily as genetic as that, so the risks are always lower. So it may be, for example, that for some diseases, having a relative with it might double your risk. But if your risk to start with was one in 10,000 and now it's one in 5,000, that's still a pretty low risk. So you have to really understand what the absolute risks are in order for you to have any real understanding of what that risk is to you. I want to get into the history of Newfoundland from the epidemiology side of things, but what is epigenetics itself? Well, epigenetics is slightly different, actually. So Newfoundland has a genetic history, which is of the people that came to colonize Newfoundland and the people who were already here, any peoples, it's what is the gene pool of those peoples that we have? In other words, what genes did we have in order to populate the Newfoundland and Labrador population from that point forward? So the people that arrived, that was your gene pool. Mm -hmm. If others didn't arrive, let's say nobody else arrived and everybody who was going to arrive arrived by 1799, then that's your gene pool. There's nothing added to it. It's just who mates with whom, how those genes are passed down, and that is the genetics of Newfoundland. If you think about it, I, I, you know, many years ago, my father was a great horse racing fan. I, I am not a horse racing fan anymore, but, but if you think of the thoroughbred racehorses, they started from three stallions and 40 mares, and that has never been added to. So that gene pool is very, very tight and very limited mm. because it started from those 43 horses. So that's what we mean when we, we talk about a gene pool. Now, epigenetics is slightly different because epigenetics is the ability to actually express a gene. So a gene, in order, in order for a gene to have an effect, it has to be read. It's like there's no point in having a recipe that you don't read and make a cake from. It just sits in the book because nobody's doing anything with it. So epigenetics is the ability to actually be able to read the actual gene. So it's the ability to either express or not express that gene. So it's a slightly different issue. Ah. But no, the genetics of Newfoundland is primarily from the uh, people who migrated here, English and Irish. But I think there's a lot more uh, influence on that gene pool rather than just English and Irish. So right. Right. And so, we, I mean, we've had uh, Portuguese fishing and French uh, settlers as well. There's First Nations as well. So there is a lot of different diversity that was there even when first colonization occurred. Absolutely. And the disease I work on, arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy, which is a dreadfully long name, and I'm just going to refer to it now as ARBC, which is a disease of the heart muscle that can cause sudden cardiac death. We probably recognize that came from either Denmark or Norway or Northern Germany. 
because we've looked in England and Ireland and things may, we, we looked there several years ago, but we really haven't seen it in England and Ireland. But it's certainly present in Northern Germany. It's present in Norway. It's present in Denmark. And not only is it present there, but it's the exact same genetic change. Mm. So all the families from Northern Europe and Newfoundland are all related. Right. They all relate back to a single ancestor somewhere between 300 and 600 AD. We're talking with Dr. Kathy Hodgkinson, who studies genetics here in the province and their link to our health. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Kathy Hodgkinson from Memorial University about genetic research here at home. Let's get back to the interview. You've mentioned the heart condition that's specific to, to Newfoundland, or at least it's very prevalent here. What are some other conditions that we're going to find here in Newfoundland that aren't very common in other parts of the world? Well, we do have, you know, a higher incidence of certain things in Newfoundland. ARVC is one of them. There may be some other heart conditions that also have a maybe, maybe a higher incidence and or prevalence. Quite often we don't really know this because it's whether somebody's really looked at it in detail to know that. But we certainly have a very high incidence of colorectal cancer. A lot of colorectal cancer has a genetic component. We have a high incidence of certain recessive diseases like uh, Bardet-Beetle syndrome, Batten syndrome, eye cell disease. There are certain diseases that we do seem to have a, a higher uh, number of people than other than other parts of the world. And that again has come from the founder population and the fact that we had um, that limited gene pool in the, in, in the first instance. Right. And the other thing it's, it's kind of interesting that you said before was that some diseases are very dictated by our genetics and some are really dictated by uh, say our lifestyle, for example, but may have a bit of a genetic component. Exactly. You know, a term I've heard before is, you know, predisposed doesn't mean predestined when it comes to a condition in many cases, how is the influence of our environment and our behaviors impact diseases along that sort of continuum yeah. you talked about? And, and that is that is a very interesting question and actually quite difficult to answer. For some genetic diseases, there is nothing you can do, in fact, to alter the fact that you're going to get it, other than by potentially not living long enough to get it. They're few and far between, thankfully. Coming a bit further down the spectrum, we have diseases that you will potentially be able to treat if you know you've got the genetic predisposition. Not everybody who has the genetic predisposition will get the disease, but they're at very high likelihood to get it. So for example, um, breast cancer and BRCA1 or BRCA2, mm -hmm. we say that anybody who has one of those mutations has about an 80% chance in their normal lifetime, mm -hmm. if they are female, of having breast cancer. Um, their risks are far higher than the general population, but it's not a given. Mm -hmm. But they might make to, want to make a decision like Angelina Jolie did to have a prophylactic mastectomy to um, make sure that they never have that mm -hmm. occurrence happen to them. To them. Well, I, so yeah. these okay. are all, you, you know, the, and, the, and, and the diseases vary according to how big that genetic component is and whether you can find the genetic cause in order to be able to know that you've got that and you know that you can do something about it. 
So before we get into the other side of the equation with things that are more influenced by behavior, but we may have more of a predisposition towards it, how do people find those genes that are the markers for those certain diseases? Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador is is a place where some of the older techniques for genetic for gene finding can actually uh, be very helpful. So having big families and being able to see everybody in the family, so you know who has disease or signs of disease versus who doesn't have disease and no signs of disease. And you can follow those across generations. They are the most powerful, one of the most powerful methods for gene finding. The other way people go about it is to do, in effect, a case control study where you collect people all with the same disease and you have a control group that doesn't have that disease. Sometimes that is, is uh, and they can work very well as well, but there are lots of potentially different uh, reasons why somebody has a disease. So, for example, ARVC in Newfoundland, we found a gene that causes that disease, but there are 13 genes known to cause that disease. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing a case study where you pick everybody with that disease and you put them together, you sort of miss the signal because there are 12 other genes there that might actually be causing that disease and you're looking for them. Right. So let me see if I got this straight. So what happens is this, if you study a whole family, then it's a high likelihood that the cause of that disease is that specific gene that's been transferred to the family. But if you study a bunch of random cases that have that disease, there might be several different genes caused by it. So the signal is clouded because it's not consistent with the same family. You've got that completely right, Mike. Thank All you right. so much. That was really good. Okay. So. So, so when you can you can marry you can marry these together, you know. I mean, you can do the two things at the same time. That's where I see the power of Newfoundland and Labrador mm. is the power of the families because people know their family, people are helpful, people want the answer to their disorder, their disease, and are willing to help with research. All of those factors mean that we have a lot of power here mm. using families in that way. Right. I think it's very interesting. I remember seeing you at an open house at the medical school where you pulled out a sheet of paper that was a family history for as far back as I could imagine. You, you've you tracked some of these families back right back to the beginning, have you not? Yeah, some of, and, you know, not, not only me, but, you know, Dr. Jane Green with her colorectal cancer families as well, and Andre McMillan with the cancer families. I mean, there are so many people I'm going to, if I name them all, I'll be here all day, but these families, my, some of my families go back 12 generations, you know, back to the late 1700s. And that data can be very helpful, particularly if you are looking at, for example, lifespan. Death is a date that most is usually quite hardwired, rather than when did you first get a cough. It's something that we know about. So you can get data from past histories from census data from church records that absolutely inform you about how this works across time right and diseases are complex aren't they because not every disease affects everybody the same way that's true of familial disease too so even within a brother and sister sibship not everybody who gets the gene mutants at the same time get it as severe as everybody else there's lots of variability. And I think that can be very confusing for people is that variability. Sure. But that is because probably the other genes they inherit and maybe their lifestyle, as you were talking about. 
how right. the external things that actually make a difference to how that gene works. That's super interesting. Well, you kind of alluded to it. It's a wellness show that I do here. And so when we look at some of the other conditions that may be very, very common in our society, we think about things like heart disease and diabetes. What role does genetics play in some of those diseases, but also how important is it that we are healthy as we can be and maybe not stress that system? Yeah. Uh, the, the reality is, Mike, the, the biggest impact on health are usually the social determinants of disease. I'm a geneticist, so I focus on that genetic aspect. And I focus on diseases for which the genetics plays a very big role. But in reality, most diseases that affect us are diseases that are relatively common, that we can do something about, we can eat healthily, we can exercise, we can consume alcohol in a moderate manner, we can avoid tobacco and, and drugs, and all of those things will help all of those diseases. There is no doubt about that. Genetics will play a role in, in that we're all the product of our DNA. So how we respond to everything in our environment, in, in the way our bodies work, has a genetic sort of underpinning. But there is absolutely no doubt that some of the biggest things you can do, regardless of your background, is to do the healthy things that we know to be good. And I suppose as a community and a population is to deal with the social determinants of health that we know matter, that poverty and inequality and disenfranchisement of individuals matter in terms of how healthy people are. So... I, I am at sort of one end of the scale of that research, which I've, I've always been interested in genetics. I've been interested in it since I was a child. Uh, it married biology and history in a way that I absolutely adored. So I do focus on that very genetic signal, but there's no doubt the majority of what we deal with as humans has that external, the things we do, the things we eat, if right. affect us and make us either healthier or not healthier. Well, that's great. I really, really appreciate that. That's something that's very interesting to me. I know it's interesting to a lot of folks because, like you said, in Newfoundland, our community, our families, uh, who we are, who we know, who knit you, that's all part of, uh, part of our culture. And it's nice to know that there's people that are looking at the people that knit us to make sure we were knit properly. I have to say that Newfoundland and Labrador is just a phenomenal place to live. My accent will say quite clearly I'm not from here, yeah. but, um, you know, I've certainly made it my home and I, I absolutely love it. I think families and community and the way community works here is a joy. Mm. So even when bad things happen, community rallies around and supports and you can't say fairer than that, can you? You can't live in a better place. Well, that's perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. That's not a problem. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. That's Dr. Kathy Hodgkinson, genetic researcher from Memorial University. When we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Rick Leach, Chief Strategy Officer of Sequence Bio, a Newfoundland and Labrador biotech company conducting genetic research. Welcome back. In this segment, we're joined by Dr. Rick Leach, Chief Strategy Officer of Sequence Bio, a Newfoundland and Labrador biotech company conducting genetic research. Dr. Leach's background is extensive. After getting his PhD from Ohio University, he continued his training as a fellow and scientist for the United States Department of Defense Division of Experimental Therapeutics. He has since gone on to become a senior executive at numerous multinational public and private biotech companies. 
He's spoken at the Personalized Medicine World Congress, presented a TEDx talk, lectured at the US National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, been on Bloomberg TV, spoken at NASA and the US Congress. Let's just say he's a good person to talk about the work Sequence Bio is doing here in the province. Let's check it out. Hi, Dr. Leach, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Well, it's a really interesting topic. We're talking about genetics today, and we're talking about the research that your organization does at Sequence Bio. Um, but maybe you could give me a bit of background on how you got into the field of genetics. Sure, absolutely. So um, I got my PhD in molecular biology, and I studied uh, certain, you know, very complex aspects of, of human genetics as a, as a graduate student. And I continued on um, as a postdoctoral fellow and visiting scientist at the United States Department of Defense and also at the National Cancer Institute, where I was uh, really implementing new advanced technologies to help you know, push the frontiers of human knowledge back, as everybody does as a scientist. I began to work uh, in the industrial side of, of science, where we were beginning to figure out how do we use human genetic information to help us with target identification for drugs to make better drugs. Mm. That, that makes perfect sense. And we, we learned a little bit about how the genetic role of diseases in the first part of the show, but there's a couple terms that are really important to understand when you're looking at uh, different population genetics. The first one is genetic admixture. Can you explain what that means? Sure. This is a really important concept, and it's, it's very relevant for the work that's being done with Sequence Bio and Newfoundland and Labrador. Genetic admixture refers to the amount of basic variety, the amount of basic variation that exists in any population in a genetic or geographic area. It's not specific at all to humans. It happens to plants and microorganisms and uh, any kind of animal that you could ever imagine. It's just the, the amount of background variation that exists over time. Mm -hmm. So the key feature about this is that when you have a population of a breeding population of whatever in a given area, over time, new mutations, de novo mutations become part of the population. That's how we all look different from each other as opposed to being just clones looking exactly like each other. So over, over the hundreds and thousands of years and tens of thousands of years, these variations accumulate in populations and it contributes to a certain amount of genetic background noise in the population. All this variety makes for very interesting people. Right. And it, 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 that makes perfect sense. But then at the same time, there's also populations like Newfoundland, which have a relatively homogeneous population. So there's another term called population bottlenecks that we should go over. Sure. And the same phenomenon applies to every living thing on the planet, this bottleneck effect. And what that means is it's, it's a natural occurrence whereby the amount of genetic variety in a population is reduced. So you can think of it this way. Imagine if you were a herd of caribou that had been breeding on an island for a long time, a defined geographic area, the amount of variation in that herd would increase over thousands of years. But if a famine came along and wiped out most of the herd and only a few individuals remained, well, the remaining individuals do not capture all the variety of the herd, just those individuals. So the total amount of genetic variation is reduced by this event. 
So it, it's happened in humans a number of times. When the humans outmigrated from Africa, there were two land bridges leaving Africa and going into Eurasia. So for you know tens of thousands of years, the humans uh, grew in population in sub-Saharan Africa, and that is the place on the earth where there is the greatest amount of genetic variation, but only a few individuals actually went across the land bridges into Eurasia to populate the rest of the planet. Hmm. And so that represented the, the first bottleneck, you know, restricting the number of genomic variants that left Africa. But this happens all the time with disease, with natural occurrences like volcanoes destroying, you know, most of a population of an island or earthquakes or what have you. In the case of Newfoundland and Labrador, the bottleneck event, the primary bottleneck event, was the migration from the southern British Isles to the island of Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. Only a few individuals went. Right. And so that is actually called the founder population. Now, we know that there was First Nations that were here beforehand, and there was various countries that came in, but there was a relatively limited population that formed the original habitants of, of Newfoundland. Can you explain what the founder population is? Yeah, for sure. So what you said is exactly correct. So the population itself, although there are representations from multiple areas, is primarily the genetics come from a set geographic area. And over the last 300 or 350 years throughout the, the history of the, the island and Labrador as well, there, there has been you know relatively limited amount of immigration from other external populations, which means that the genetic pool has stayed relatively homogenous compared to the rest of the world. So what that really means is that inside the population of Newfoundland and Labrador, the people are more genetically similar compared to other populations, and therefore there's less background genetic noise. And this actually is is very, very important for discovery biology work. Right. And so that's some of the work that you guys do at Sequence Bio. You know, when you're looking at a population that is in in, in general more similar than other populations in the world, how can that actually help with your genetic discovery efforts? Yeah, it's, it's critical. It's a critical component. So the question is how much more effective is it to work with the founder population? What's, what's the net effect of a reduced background noise to doing these studies? And there's evidence to show, published evidence to show that doing discovery work off of a founder population versus a highly admixed population, in other words, something you might find in the United States, is anywhere between 10 and 170 times more efficient and effective. In other words, if you had a discovery cohort of a thousand people in Newfoundland and Labrador, you would need a discovery cohort of anywhere between 10,000 and 170,000 to get the same effect in some other population. It's massively more efficient and effective. In fact, it, some, some work just can't be done very well outside of a discovery cohort in a founder population. In terms of the, the population in Newfoundland and Labrador, because they are so similar, uh, everyone is so similar to each other that we are able to make distinction between a variation in the human genome, in other words, some disease-causing variation, versus a, just a naturally occurring bit of background noise that doesn't contribute to a disease. So this is important. 
When we go to do discovered biology work, it's always a signal to noise ratio. Are we able to pick out the signal from a disease causing gene versus everything else that's happening in the very complex background of the genome? Now, I know your previous guest talked about the genome a little bit, and so you'll forgive me for being redundant, but in the human genome, there are 3 billion, 300 million different monomeric or nucleotide components. In other words, you can think of it as a very long, boring song that had just four notes. And those four notes are repeated 3 billion, 300 million times to form one specific song. Now, the genome that, as I've just described, that's you know roughly 23,000 genes, and those genes are expressed. I mean, it's the set of information to make the human to control how the human is born, grows, gets old, dies, all of that in the blueprints of the genome. So those 23,000 genes produce about 670,000 different proteins and millions of small molecules. So your body, the human body itself is made up of trillions of cells and countless molecules. And yet the roots of the diseases that we face on a daily basis all around the world are rooted in these molecules. So we're looking for the differences between the people that have a given disease and the people that don't have a given disease. And if we can filter out all the background noise, we're able to see the signal of the disease better. This is why the founder population is so important. This is why Newfoundland is so important in Labrador. Right. And that makes perfect sense. So see if I clarify this correctly, if you have a population that's relatively similar and you see a disease show up in that population consistently, you are better able to find what gene is causing that because there's more similarity in the people that are getting that disease because they're from a certain area. Correct? That's right. That's exactly correct. And this is, a, I think, an important distinction to understand. There, there may be a belief, and I, I don't believe that it's true, that there is excess disease in the population of Newfoundland and Labrador. I think that uh, there may be some kinds of diseases that uh, exist in higher prevalence in the province than the rest of the world, like colorectal cancer, for instance. But there's also some diseases that exist in lower prevalence in the province, like Alzheimer's disease. So I think all in all, the rate of disease in the province is about the same as the overall rate of disease as anywhere else in the world. The key for us as we begin to work with the people of the province is this founder effect. It's to get rid of the background noise of the genome so we can better identify those genes. That's Dr. Leach from Sequence Bio. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Rick Leach, Chief Strategy Officer of Sequence Bio, a Newfoundland and Labrador biotech company conducting genetic research. Let's check it out. So Dr. Leach, what's the role of genetic discovery when it comes to drug development? Because I got to think that if you can understand the makeup and the genes responsible for a condition, you'd better be able to find a treatment that's a, it's a little bit more applicable to that specific condition. Yeah, that's the, that's the fundamentals right there that you just said. So if we're able to identify the gene or more specifically, the parts of genes that might contribute to disease, that's called target identification. Now, we don't actually make drugs 
that interact directly with DNA. We make drugs that interact with proteins, which are the products of DNA, or lipids, or big macromolecular systems. So the first part of drug discovery is identifying which part of the blueprint is messed up. That's, that's the, the DNA part of it. That's the target identification part. It's a really long process. And it's important to understand this because this is where the people of Newfoundland and Labrador come in. If we can identify what the good targets are for drug development, after that, global pharmaceutical companies put those targets into what's called functional biology. They look to see if there are any downstream molecules like proteins that are made from those genes that are druggable. Can they be targeted with chemical compounds and turned into drugs? And then those drugs get tested in clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials, and ultimately approved. Now this whole process is very long. Like right now, it's estimated that between the first step, target identification, and the last step, an approved drug that's being marketed to physicians to treat people, that that's anywhere between 12 and 15 years long. Mm. Uh, that process right now costs 2.9 or more billion dollars start to finish for every single target. Mm -hmm. So here's the important thing. You have to start out with the right target because if you don't, it's expensive and time consuming and you can't make the benefits for people to help treat their disease. I like to think of it this way. If you're going to button your shirt, you take the first button and you put it in the second buttonhole rather than the first buttonhole, every button after that gets lined up wrong. You have to start out right. That's why this is so good targets. Right. And that, that makes sense. And so the work that you guys do at Sequence Bio, that includes identifying some of these targets in our population? That's right. That's right. That's, that's exactly the work that we do. So it, yes, we do work with genetics, but we also do work with other biological molecules like proteins and other sorts of small molecules, metabolites. But the, the key factor for us is to be able to work with the founder population of Newfoundland and Labrador. You know, by reducing that background noise in the systems, we're better able to identify what those targets can be. That's really the, the critical part. And so we enlist the help of the people uh, in our studies. Uh, we have a, a protocol, for instance, the Newfoundland and Labrador Genome Project, which has been approved by the Human Research Ethics Board and that we work all around the province uh, with the people to do. We have people who give consent to participate in our project. They share their, graciously share their medical records with us and give us a biological sample so that we can analyze the DNA and other molecules. That's right. Okay, so a colleague of mine, and actually my supervisor for my PhD is Dr. Jerry Mugford, who's involved with that research. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit more about that and how people could get involved in that study? Yeah, Mike, that's a, that's a, it's a really exciting project. Not only is it one of the biggest uh, projects of its type in the province, it's actually one of the biggest projects of its type in Canada, in the history of the, in the, of the country. And so what we're actually doing is working with uh, participants from the population to help understand the genetic architecture 
of Newfoundland and Labrador. In other words, what is the level of admixture in the genetics? What is the, how homogenous is the genetics of the population? In other words, how appropriate is it for discovery biology research downstream? In fact, um, we're, pro we're providing the, the actual scientific evidence to back up the belief that it is a true founder population and everything we know so far from our results is that that is in fact the case. That's one reason we, we work in this project. Another reason we're doing this project is to earn the trust of the people of the province. So as we continue to build out our studies over the coming years to help enable discovery, to help make better drugs, we want the people to trust us and believe that we are operating in a way that is good for them and good for the world at large. In fact, one of the other key goals is to establish an ethical and moral framework to engage the, the people uh, so that they, again, will feel comfortable and know that we have their best interest at, at heart. And, you know, following along with that, we're working hard to build partnerships with the medical community so that they are comfortable working with us and, and the physicians are the intermediary between their patients, our hopefully future participants and the company. They, they help us as partners. Yeah, and I've, I went through ethics for my uh, doctoral research, and I will tell anybody listening, it is an extremely extensive process that ensures that everybody is well aware of what they're getting involved with. So that sounds like uh, it's obviously a very huge project and something that's important to our, our population and our long-term health, really. So, you know, what are the benefits of, of Sequence Bio's work and what you guys are doing here at home? Now, there's all kinds of benefits at all kinds of levels. On the individual level for our participants, there are direct benefits. For instance, one of the things that we do with our study is we look, if, if participants want us to, if they consent to it, we, we look for certain genetic variations. In other words, parts of genes that might be associated with uh, disease. And so when these are well understood, in fact, there are 32 diseases that are well associated with genetic variations across 59 different genes that we look at. In fact, the truth is there's 32 disease areas, 59 genes that we interrogate with 12,809 different genetic probes to see if there are any pathogenic or deleterious variants. And then if there are, we return this information back to the physician so that appropriate medical action be, can be taken inside the circle of care. Right, okay. And so I know that, for example, in Newfoundland right now, people, they're looking at different ways for diversification of businesses and they're looking at the tech sector. And, and now it looks as though there's also huge opportunities when it comes to the medical world and genetics. You know, what's kind of the goal of the work you guys are doing and ultimately like what's the what's the model of the of the of the business really? Our goal is is very straightforward, and, and that is to help enable the development of better therapeutics, whether it's better drugs that get made or diagnostics that are made, or even medical devices. Really, the objective is to help understand the basics of human biology that contribute to disease. And then we will work with the biggest global pharmaceutical companies and the most cutting edge biotechnology companies and artificial intelligence analysis companies to help us make sense of this rich data set and essentially enable all the great discoveries from around the world. It's a unique and huge opportunity. And it's important 
this even, um, it's hard for me to even conceptualize myself, but if we do our job right, the work that we do will have a profound impact on the day-to-day, minute-to-minute lives of millions of people around the world. Now, that's going to take some time. It's going to take a lot of investment from the, you know, the pharmaceutical community and a lot of uh, participation from the people of the province. But that is a real end point. Yeah, it's nice when you can accomplish two things. And uh, same sort of thing is why I've always been involved in wellness. You get a chance to help people, but at the same time, you can have a roof over your head. You know, just a sort of uh, outward looking question here, because I know you've been involved in genetics since people started testing genetics. Where is this going to take us? Like, what will we eventually be able to accomplish for our health, you think, in the very far future, if we continue down this path? Yeah, I don't even think it's going to be all that far. So what's happening right now all around the world as the cost to understand the sequence of the genome comes down, more and more sequencing gets done. More and more understanding about the human body and big data is is identified. And so all of us, as part of our personal health care, will have a better analysis of our bodies and our genetics moving forward, implemented across all the healthcare systems around the world. I've done this sort of work for precision medicine for the last, well, since genome sequencing became available. And what it will mean to us is, as individuals is that we'll have our genome sequenced once, twice, maybe many times during our lives, and we'll be able to identify any potential medical dangers that lie in front of us and get out before it and do uh, preventive care rather than reactive medical care. And the cost to do this, the understanding about how to do this is improving all over the world. This is, listen, this is non-trivial. The, the genome is, is the original big data. It, it is the fundamental information source for everything. Uh, so it's, it's not easy to do. But in the next 10, 15 years, I think we'll see it happening in every society around the world. That's excellent. Well, we all know that taking care of your health before it gets bad is better. That's true healthcare as opposed to sick care. So it's nice to know that uh, that's the direction that we're moving in a lot of ways. Dr. Leach, thanks so much for taking the time to uh, share your research with us today. I found it super interesting. So much appreciated. Thank you. Happy to be on your show. We'd love to come back sometime and talk about it more. hundred percent. I look, I expect there's going to be lots of evolutions as we continue. Thank you to Dr. Hodgkinson and Dr. Leach for joining me today. It's amazing the work that's going on here at home and the impact it can have for people around the world. We're just starting to unlock the human genome and it sounds like the research that will come from that will change the way we deal with our health. Well, thank you for joining me. That's today's episode. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM.